Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Universal access to all knowledge. Free, open, keep one way. Now get offline and travel. Hey, welcome back. In the early days of the web, the challenge for startups wasn't getting people to choose your site over some other site to say, download music or read the news. It was in getting people to even consider doing these things on the web at all. My guest for today, Martha Lane Fox and her business partner, Brent Hoberman, created a website, lastminute.com, that took on what was probably the greatest challenge of all, getting people to make purchases online, in this case, mostly for plane tickets, using their credit cards. Her latest endeavor, not-for-profit think tank dot everyone, is using advocacy, educational efforts, and prototyping to create a fair internet that can benefit all users and pushes for greater diversity in the technology sector. I sat down with Martha and we talked about what lessons she's taken with her from having created one of the first and largest e-commerce sites on the internet. We also talked a lot about her work at Dot Everyone confronting gender and algorithmic bias and how Dot Everyone can support lawmakers as they try to create sensible tech policy in the UK and abroad. Martha starts off telling me how in the early days of Last Minute, just getting people to realize she was promoting a website was a huge undertaking. My immediate reaction is lastminute.com because we used to be so obsessive about making sure people understood that they had to type .com into the browser. So it's only very recently that I've felt a bit more relaxed about people saying last minute without literally my body going into sort of paroxysm because I'm like, you have to call it lastminute.com otherwise people won't understand. But you're totally right and it seems very odd now, nearly 20 years later, I mean in fact 20 years later, to think that back here in 1997, beginning of 1998, Amazon was just arriving. There are a couple of small UK e-commerce sites, but not really. And we were building the momentum around this revolution that we thought was going to happen in commerce. And it is incredibly easy to underestimate how our battle wasn't about whether people should use lastminute.com. It was whether or not they should actually use the internet. And that's why I wanted to ask that question just specifically because on some level, it's a huge undertaking in changing user behavior, right? And getting a whole groups of people to do something entirely different as you not just go from one site to another yeah. site. Yeah. What are the lessons that you've sort of taken from that you now 20 years later in the type of work you're doing? Is there like key things that people should know about that you learned about yeah. how do you get big, big groups of people to do stuff on the internet? I think it's a really interesting challenge to people now to think about how it was back 20 years ago because you know the way the mechanisms to create scale now are very different. It's um, important not to forget that when we started, there really wasn't any Google in the UK. We were doing deals with Yahoo, Alta Vista, all these you know, AOL sites. Um, there was no Facebook. There was no social media to, to speak of. This was all to come later. So you, know, you have to have that backdrop because now, obviously, it's much, much harder to build scale of any kind on the Internet without going into the duopolies that we face uh, 
in the, the closed world of, of the web, I guess. But having said that, there are, of course, parallels. You know, I think the thing, the two or three things that I come back to always are, firstly, as a founder, you are always on a sales mission. You just are in any organisation. You know, I founded Real World Businesses, karaoke chain here, right in Lucky Voice called, called Lucky Voice, which here in Soho in London. Founded online businesses, lastminute.com. Founded charities, everyone most recently, and um, Go On UK previously. And the thing that I found as a founder, and maybe it's just my style, but I think it's a truth, is that you have to be on a personal mission to convince people of what you are believing or seeing or thinking is the right way of going in the future. And that makes it very hard if you don't actually believe in the product or thing you're trying to manoeuvre into. Um, but luckily, with lastminute.com, we were genuinely really excited by it was Brent's idea, the idea that he'd had, but also the momentum being created around the internet. Just as now I feel as much fervour for the mission that we're trying to to create with dot everyone so i think it is firstly about that initial uh evangelical mission that you as a founder have to go on to create the momentum just in the people immediately around you and that will then seep out into the wider universe the second thing i'd say is you've got to have a really compelling mission and story and product whether that's a kind of social purpose as a charity or whether it's a commercial product as a company and increasingly i think that the two are completely linked so at lastminute.com the excitement really built partly because of the shifting technology landscape and people thinking, wow, what's going on here and what are these two young people who are excited about this stuff talking about? But partly also, sorry, because we had 99 pound flouts to New York. You know, that was the killer thing. Haldor Haldorson from Iceland Air, God bless him. Brent and I badgered him relentlessly for about three months. Haldor took the pump with us. Two kids that didn't know anything about travel, didn't know anything about airlines, were just trying to get people great deals for short breaks and providing a new way of um, allowing that live availability to be easily uh, looked at and then people to buy the product. So when we got those things, those flights, £99, that really was a kind of, okay, that's killer for people. That is something that I'm going to struggle through the not very good technology, the not very good lastminute.com website, frankly, to get to because I really want to get to New York for that knockout price. Why did he give you guys that price? um, I think because he, like all airlines, is operating at such high um, uh, capacity and margins and profit levels to make a profit if you see what I mean so you know every single seat that is filled is a brilliant thing for an airline because the dynamics of airline economics are so nuts so we were able to say look Haldorson take the brand off this flight so people don't know immediately it's Iceland Air although it was going via Reykjavik so it wasn't much of a secret and we can sort of shield you a bit from what you're doing but at the same time we can give you that extra capacity on flights that perhaps have been harder to fill before and it worked. And yep. he, you know, he took a punk and maybe British Airways wouldn't have done that initially, but Iceland Air could maybe take that risk. And as it was, British Airways did come on board over time. So, And there's it, been a whole, I mean, there's really, there's been a, so many industries just modeled on this concept, right? Definitely yeah. travel and tourism. Yeah. I mean, you have apps now like Hotel Tonight, which yeah. is very similar, but even uh, things like Gilt, which yeah. are yeah, a very similar concept, but with, yeah. with clothing. I yeah. mean, really. And furniture sites, and there's been, you know, Arguably, you could say that even something like TaskRabbit is sort of similar. I mean, they're all creating marketplaces, aren't they, where spare capacity or spare knowledge or extra knowledge is more effectively utilised. So um, that's the second thing I'd say. You know, founder passion, but also then a killer product that people can easily understand and recognise. And sometimes that can be much harder in a not-for-profit organisation than it is in a for-profit one because you're trying to find what that mission is to get people behind. You know, creating a movement, creating an active change in people's um, psyche is 
perhaps harder sometimes than the brutal commerce that people can immediately uh, understand and want to have a part of. But both are as important. And then, you know, the final thing, and it sounds kind of blindingly obvious, but it's never one thing in my experience. To create change, you have to have not just the killer mission, the killer product, whatever it might be, but and the founder passion, but you also need to have the wider marketing. You know, it's the kind of media landscape coming together with how you're uh, attracting users online. It's it's not one piece of a puzzle. You have to have a whole framework for change, and that can come from many different sources. So, you know, we were lucky with lastminute.com because we got massive amplification in the real-world media because they were excited about what was happening by the internet or frightened by it or whatever the hell it was they wanted to write about us, just like now and how the work I'm trying to do in kind of fighting for a fairer internet. We need the mainstream media to be writing about this as much as we do our own, you know, digital stuff because otherwise they're never going to be all the levers pulling together. So I want to follow the thread of passion there for a second because you've done a lot of stuff since lastminute.com but a lot of the things you've done are I would say social good projects projects that are really aimed at and oriented around making the internet easier to use for citizens in the mm-hmm. UK and now uh, recently started this thing called Dot Everyone yeah. where you're the executive chair well tell us a bit about that absolutely I was given the opportunity slash absolutely terrifying prospect of giving a major lecture on British television I know that sounds very old fashioned but BBC One our main channel here has a yearly lecture called the Dimbleby Lecture after one of our leading broadcasters it's 45 minutes where you can just literally talk on mainstream television and I was offered this opportunity and obviously it was an amazing uh, way for me to think about what do I care about now what's my kind of journey of 20 years through technology taught me and it really crystallized in my mind that to me we have a huge amount of um, attention and interest from government from users from companies in building the digital economy but perhaps less has been put into building digital society now in a way, that might be a bit of a tautology, as in society is now digital. But I would argue that we need to very consciously, as human beings, make sure we're making the right decisions about how to balance out that corporate world of the internet, the corporate interests, whether that's startup interests or whether that's the big platform-based companies, with what we as citizens and as parents and as educators and as nurses and as you know, voters might also want from the internet. And that is equally important. So Dot Everyone is a small relatively small think tank charity we make stuff we're not just um campaigning organization we do prototyping and so on but working at a high level to keep the focus on how to make the internet work for everyone not just for the economic uh, model that we're used to uh creating using online tools so tell me about how you think it's not working for everyone you know what are the main areas that you would say because i think the mission part of the mission is to make it fairer right to make it more fair so underlying that is this idea that some parts of it are unfair i'll give you um three very tangible examples. The first is, you know, we still, um, and I think this is true of most countries around the world, have people in policy making decision, making uh, roles or jobs, elected officials, people, you know, running schools, running massive bits of our healthcare system who quite understandably don't have the experience of technology that maybe you or I have because we've worked in the industry. Now, to me, that's a huge, enormous problem because they are making decisions on a daily or yearly basis about things that affect all of us as citizens of the UK and and more broadly in other countries. And it's very, very important, I think, that we help policymakers, public sector leaders, people in public life understand the complexity of the challenges that the technological world is facing and not just worrying about AI and machine learning in 10, 15 years' time, but actually the things we can do right now to make a more inclusive um, 
product, I guess, if you like, to help improve people's lives. So we've done a lot of work with MPs. We're now doing some work um, with the mayor's office here in the UK, done some work in the health service to help uh, public um, sector leaders understand what the internet's about. And that's a big piece of what everyone's trying to do, trying to close that gap between people that understand a bit about technology and those that don't because they haven't had that exposure in their lives. Do you think the prob- this problem that you're describing is a new problem? Does it map to, say... I don't know, uh, lawmakers trying to regulate water or clean air 30 years ago when those type of topics were very scientific and, and confusing. Is it is a similar problem accelerated or is it a new problem? I it, think it's an accelerated problem, but it's also new because of two factors. Firstly, you know, water or electricity, sure, they're now part of the fabric of our daily lives, but they were kind of discrete resources. It's much more complicated with digital technologies. You know, it's it affects every single aspect of our working our um, home lives, our lives as civil society. So, you know, it's not as easy as to say we just have to regulate this thing called technology or we have to think about it in this way. It's that we need to reimagine how we do public services, thinking about the tools we have for the modern age. And I'm not talking about internet only. I'm just talking about how do we make sure that we are being uh, effective in making decisions in 2017, not thinking of it through the lens of 1817. I was involved, one of the things I've enjoyed most in my career, in setting up um, a team in central government here in London called the Government Digital Service. We recreated how government does online services and created a website called gov.uk, one of the biggest websites in the country. Many countries around the world have taken the source code for this. And I got involved and was lucky enough to be given the air cover to um, find the team and start um, on this huge shift in how government does public services. And this is a massively big step forward in terms of simplification of the product that we as citizens are using, but also the amount of money that government was spending on technology and hopefully um, the complexity and the way that the civil service operates. It's really difficult. It's really tough, but it's... um, embedding now in every single aspect of government how they use digital technology. And that is very different to water electricity, which was much more discreet. It's a huge problem, right? And I, you mentioned that maybe you and I have been in the industry and know more. You know, I feel like I know a bunch about technology. I feel like I know less and less every week, actually. Some of these problems are are so complex. It's just, you, you just wonder how somebody whose job it is really to represent people and to make laws is ever going to be knowledgeable enough to you know, to really, to do that job. I mean, it's, it's I, just a, it's, it's a massive it's, problem. It is, it is really phenomenally complicated. I totally agree. And what's interesting, though, is that it does feel like at least the conversation is starting. I'll yeah. give you examples from different end of the spectrum. Just this weekend, our ex-Prime Minister, Tony Blair, was talking about how he perceives, perceives the pace of technological change and policymaking as one of the most important things to join up across the global uh, spectrum. And, you know, to hear him talking about that as a key priority for the world is good. I mean, whatever you think about Tony Blair, it's good to have that momentum behind things. Last night I was lucky enough to spend some time with Jaron Lanier. He was also talking about, you know, how do we make sure that we are making the best decisions in the future, but not necessarily from a regulation point of view, but from a kind of citizen activism point of view. You know, it does feel as though the conversation is shifting to thinking much more about how do we structure our world now to make sure we can take advantage of the things that are great and maybe try and slow down some of the things that perhaps were the unintended consequences of the things that we have created over the last 20 years. Yeah, I was. we had uh, Larry Lessig on the podcast a, a little bit I'd ago. I'd love to meet him. Yeah, he's a very, very smart man. And one of the things he brought up and talked a lot about was how we've lost 
we've gained the internet, which is great, yeah. but part, something that we've lost is this concept of, of agreed upon knowledge or shared knowledge. Yeah. And that, it's uh, so you know, strange that though, isn't it? Because think about what, well, I don't know if you felt the same, but when I think back to part of what I felt excited, was exciting back in the late 90s was this notion that we would have greater shared knowledge and shared understanding because suddenly here was this incredible information revolution. Again, it sounds maybe naive or trite to say now, but it's really important. Really, uh, it was profoundly exciting to think. Here was me, a young woman who could start a business basically from a bedroom in a flat. And it really was true. You know, you could live that dream. And now it feels like we've got so far removed from some of those early promises. I, I, I find it depressing to hear Larry say that. Well, I mean, I think if you, you know, I think his point is if you look at how we, the information that we had before, mm. you know, generally, this is an overstatement, but generally people were getting their news from one of one a few source, television yeah. channels. Sources, and, yeah. and those sources generally were kind of middle of the road. And yeah. there was a lot of bad things about those things. They were exclusionary yeah. to a lot of yeah. people. Um, they didn't cover a lot of information, yeah. but there's some good things which we had to share yeah. knowledge. And now we have sources yeah. of everywhere, anything yeah. you'd ever want to know, yeah. but we can't even talk about anything yeah. because nobody agrees on, yeah. you know, whether a, yeah. any basic fact. Is that something that dot everyone's, well, is that a challenge? It's, that, it absolutely, it's a challenge. Yeah. It's not what we're directly working uh -huh. on right now. Um, we've got so three strands of projects and that's not one of them. But what we hope will happen as a result of the work that we're doing is that there will be more um, capacity for people to think about the right ways to uh, help people through those challenges. You know, I don't think that we are going to be able to address the challenges of fake news unless policymakers understand the internet, just yeah. to that degree more. And us as citizens as well, right? We've got to have a bit more of an uh, eye-opening and awakening of what our relationship with technology is. And those are the things that everyone will absolutely continue to champion. You know, just on that point, I believe that's why it's really important that um, authoritative sources, you know, I'm lucky enough to be Chancellor of the Open University, a huge university here in the UK. It's all um, sort of learning and it can uh, it encompasses anybody that wants to do a degree you can do it over 10 years 40 years five years whatever you like it's an incredible institution similarly the BBC you know two very important um, different kinds of organizations that we have in the UK that I think can be guardians of some of the things that you're talking about and those trusted sources those authentic sources are going to be so important in the future and the BBC isn't uh, isn't considered as sort of partisan as no. maybe public television in the United States no, is, right? It, it's well, generally... Probably, I mean, it depends. Every government always says, oh, the BBC is in favour of the other okay. aspect of the government or you know, opponents always come out. But there is something so um, important at the core of the BBC. It's independent from government, has a funding structure, partly created by government, partly not anymore. And it is... Um, you know, very, very trusted news source. Uh, its challenge is to keep being relevant for the next generation, like every institution that was born in another uh, era. But to have that at the core of our democracy and, you know, still at the bunch of, the bunch, at the heart of people's viewing habits is very, very important. You know, I'll give you a slightly different example. Um, there's an incredible show on BBC at the minute called The Blue Planet 2 all about marine life I saw in the, the ocean. Other night. It's yeah, amazing, it's amazing. Right? It's almost like, like 18 million viewers have been watching it. I think about this a lot partly because my husband works in marine conservation. And there are, you know, if the BBC can through its very, very rigorous scientific discovery of things under the ocean, which have never been seen before and are leading to massive research and change and can also open the British public's eyes to the climate crisis that is happening under the ocean. That is extremely important work because where else could you get that many people shared experience every week teetering uh, with excitement through the week about what we're going to discover under the ocean and you know I personally would always fight to try and preserve that even if it's a bit of a strange anomaly of how our British broadcasting landscape is set up. 
the BBC wins a lot of Webby Awards, I got to tell you. Yeah, they so, do. <laughs> um, so that was, so you said three things that dot everyone's Sorry. working. That's okay. So, so the first, first one was... The first one was kind of the Policymakers. Gap, yeah, and, and elective officials and people working. It could be, I could be talking as much about the headmistress of a school as I could be about the woman that's running a massive primary care trust of hospitals. This is, we need to help all of the people who are affecting our lives um, be able to make good decisions using the modern tools that we have. So that's the first thing. The second thing I think that, makes a fairer internet and I would say this is the um, hideous gender balance on in the creation of the internet and as a byproduct of that I would argue the skewing of you know female voices or you know what women are able to do or doing online so we're not explicitly working on a project about gender but everything we do has that at its core a kind of inclusion and a way of um, really thinking deeply about making sure the maximum number of people are involved in the creation of the internet its future products and services um, and that is an enormous challenge you know obviously as a woman that's worked in technology my whole life I feel I have to be part of the discussion if people invite me to do things I always try and do them it's something so core to me because it is so dispiriting to see where we have ended up. Uh, I, I still find it somewhat baffling. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Yeah, and I mean, it's 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 a problem that just keeps getting bigger in oh a way, right? Word. Because I think I've, I've heard you talk and I've, I've, you know, learned a lot about you know, just basic things like some of the oldest sites on the internet were predominantly made by men. Yeah. Um, you have this idea of Wikipedia, which yeah. is a you know great resource. We love Absolutely. Wikipedia, yeah. but you know something like eighty-five percent of all the entries I are know. made by men. So I that's know. sort of I an older problem. And, and, that's still and going. That, yes, and people say, so what? But what matters is right. We're sitting in a podcast studio, and right next door, Jennifer Egan, the amazing writer, is being interviewed on another podcast, and I was lucky enough just to be introduced to her. So she's in my mind. I bet you, if we looked up Jennifer. Egan on Wikipedia, there would be far less written about her than there would be of a probably less successful male writer because it just gravitates towards men's interests and perhaps people that they know or people that they've studied or great scientists. And this really matters because if we underplay women's contribution to the world through the main resources that we have about sharing collective knowledge, then they're going to keep disappearing. The, you know, everything from hidden figures to I just read an amazing book called The Glass Universe by Davos Stobel about the women that worked in the Harvard Observatory at the turn of the last century. Yeah, but these are women's stories that are not being fleshed out and I bet you are not being um, rep- represented fairly in some of those resources that we're talking about. So it matters because the products we're creating are therefore either not accurate or are biased towards men and therefore are missing half the audience and that's just missing half if you're a commercial organization half your revenue stream potentially yeah. but if you're trying to kind of represent something else then you're missing half the world's views and that's wrong too 
But I, there's even like a, a, a another, you know, sort of even more complicated place that this is going, which mm. is now all of this data that has been largely created by yep. men over the last 20 or 30 years is now being used yep, to, to, to train algorithms, which yep. are, are only going to yep. make it worse. Oh, yes. <laughs> I don't even know where to start, really. You yeah. know, I'm not a software engineer, and it is hard sometimes to have the language to talk to software engineers about the profoundly important nature of exactly this discussion. And, you know, I don't believe that a software engineer wakes up in the morning, a male software engineer, to create a horrible gender-biased algorithm. It's not that at all. It's just the law of unintended consequences. And I was much struck um, when I was reading a bit about several civil engineering and how in civil engineering you cannot become a certified civil engineer to build a bridge or build a railroad or whatever it might be if you don't have an ethics certificate. Of course you can't because what if you create a dam that might not work or you shoddy building practices or whatever. What's the equivalent in software engineering? How do we create something which means that there's a kind of law in people's uh, psyche that means they have to be able to be responsible and think about all of the things that might be the ripple effects from what they're creating. You know, obviously, software is not a regulated industry. It's a completely different construct. But I think there might be ways to tease some of this out. So that kind of brings me to the final part of what everyone is doing. Thank you for the neat segue. Yeah. So the third piece is, um, you know, we had this notion, and I was thinking about this, I don't buy any clothes if I don't know where they come from. I want to be sure that there is not a small child in a country, developing country, being strapped to a factory in uh, making my trousers or my socks or whatever they might be. It's very hard as a user of anything to get that comfort when you're in transaction. Expensive also. It is expensive, but it's getting cheaper, I yeah. would argue. And it's, you know, the, the fair trade movement has put a massive pressure on mainstream retailers. What's the equivalent for technology? So we're trying to look at what does responsible technology look like? What does sustainable technology look like? Is there a kite mark approach, you know, some kind of um, trade stamp or something that could give users, citizens, buyers comfort that this is a site that both doesn't screw over its workers, but also might have um, a more clear relationship with your data than perhaps other sites might, or a whole bunch of other things that, that we're looking at. So I'm really excited about this because this goes back to kind of how do you create a movement for an inclusive, um, respectful, sustainable, more um, open internet? And I think this could be one of the levers that we use. Not because I think everybody in the world is going to care about this stuff, but just in the way that the fair trade movement, although it's still relatively small, it has definitely put pressure on the mainstream market. Right. And is that something that you think is UK-based? No, no, I think that's a global thing. Yeah, I think it has potential to scale up everywhere. And I'm really excited by its potential. It's very early stages, but breaking news here for you on the Webby podcast. Do you think, I mean... Uh, you were talking about policymakers before. Mm. Do you think who's like whose responsibility is some of this <laughs> stuff? Is it? I mean, it's it's everybody's responsibility, it's obviously. Everybody. But without without creating some ownership around the responsibility, you know, it's hard to it's hard to get somebody to fix it or to yeah, do things. Yeah, I don't. Like you know, and it's not one person to yeah. fix, is it? I think it is. A, it's a kind of triangulated stuff. You know, I think that it is the media's responsibility to ask better questions. Um, I think that it is the political class's responsibility to ask tough questions and look at where the boundaries of regulation might be. And it's all of us as um, civil society to put the pressure on and show with how we use these things. You know, we do have more power than we sometimes realise. I don't think many people know that there might be an alternative to Google that doesn't keep your data in DuckDuckGoGo, one of my 
favourite sites and least favourite brands. Um, or I don't think people know that you can ask now with the latest EU um, regulation coming in here about um, data, for your data to be taken back off some of the sites that you've used. So you have more levers in your power than you might realise. So unfortunately, it's not when any one thing, it's got to be corporate stepping up and realising that the old game is over and we've now got to create some a new playing field. It's political, political class putting pressure on and it's the media and it's us as users. And like every great change or movement, all those things have to come together for us to make a shift. I mean, part of the problem, too, is that, you know, we first of all, we call them users. We're like the only industry except for the drug industry that calls our customers users. So there's that. <laughs> That's such a good point. And I, never, of, I try and talk about citizens and, you know, but you're absolutely no, right. No, all users. of us. We all call them. Yeah. But part of the problem, too, is that myself included, almost at every turn, we almost always choose to give up data yeah. and privacy in exchange for convenience. I mean, it's just the, it's almost like a law of the internet. Yeah, on some I'll level, give you right? this, right? Not just data. We've been doing some research at Diver One. One of our planks of work is to do some kind of deep, granular, um, longitudinal studies about how people feel about technology, not just how they use it, like how many hours on their smartphone, but actually, are they worried about the, the thing you've just described, the conundrum you've just described? Get this. We're interviewing a woman who said that she had been punched in the face by an Uber driver, and yet she still uses Uber nearly every day. <laughs> We were like, wow, that is kind of a metaphor for the whole tech sector, isn't it? Because she felt like the price and the convenience of this service was still worth it, despite she having had this horrible, aggressive experience. I was somewhat blown away by that, but it is exactly what you're talking about. And I want to come back just for a second to women in tech. One of the questions this is a question you've heard a thousand times, but still a question I have, which is, um, you address the problem, mm-hmm. um, which is there's you know an imbalance, and the imbalance mm-hmm. leads to an industry created by men, and eventually mm-hmm. will lead to Bad algorithms. Yeah. But how, you know how do we how do we sort it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I am asked this, as you can imagine, all the time, and by a lot of men who are in the industry, or you know, in financing the industry, or broader bits of the industry that want to know how to sort it out. Hire more women. And I know that sounds like the most stupid thing to say, but I really increasingly think it is just that simple. And I'll give you a classic example. So I have a conversation like this all the time with either VCs or seed funders. Or, but there are no women. I'm like, well, hire some women from another industry and train them up because there are some brilliant women all over the place. I looked at the great, I haven't been to the conference, but I looked at Grace Hopper online this year. And I was like, here are 5,000 young, brilliant women in the tech sector. They could all be recruited across different jobs. You know, there are women all over the place doing amazing things. I'm not a technologist, but I came into the sector. So I don't mean to sound kind of uh, simplistic about it, but I do often think it is that simple. Hire more women, change the dynamics of the industry. And if you can't find them, then take them out of other industries and train them up. It's not that hard to be a VC or a seed funder. Just blooming train them i think those those that's one of my first just like come back to that all the time but then i think the other thing to really look at carefully and i guess i'm talking about this more from a kind of organizational company point of view is the subconscious biases that you might be exhibiting and i know there's been a lot of chat about it but it still does take my breath away when you look at some of the data for example it is just a fact and, you know, too much for this one podcast about all the cultural reasons why might this be the case. But in an appraisal system, if you have a hard target, so let's say a woman has six hard targets and a man has six hard targets, and let's say the woman gets six of them, when she is assessing her own performance, she will typically say that she has not achieved the hard targets, even if it is a number that she has achieved. Whereas men will say that they have achieved the numbers, even if they haven't. It's just a huge cultural 
confidence problem. And I mention that because that has such a trickle-through effect to everything. Say you are basing your retention policies, your bonus policies, your promotion policies around some appraisal systems based on that. You've really got to unpick what's going on there and look at it in deep detail, and it will be different from company to company or you know, organisation to organisation. And that's just one aspect of why there may or may not be very many women in one bit of your organisation. But unless we go into that level of detail, how do you recruit? What's the language on your job adverts? How do you interview? How are you assessing what those interviews were like? How are you choosing what person you want in your team? How are you rewarding them? How are you retaining all of the bits of the chain? Then I don't think we'll ever break it down. But the good news is, lots more is happening than I can ever remember. If I look just around here in London, there are loads of different groups coming together with this. There are groups training women to get back into work with new digital skills. There are much more support networks for women who are working in the industry. There is definitely more of a focus on it. We just now need this to turn into action and lead to change. Martha Lane Fox, thank you for joining us on the Webby Podcast. It's been great to have you. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks so much to Martha Lane Fox for chatting with me. It's always great to sit down with members of our community who have pioneered many of the internet and business models we use daily. Also, if you're unfamiliar with Dot Everyone's work, head over to their website to learn more about their fight for a fair internet. Our producer is Sebastian Ade. Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Research and writing by Jordana Jarrett. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is the locksmith who answers your phone call. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week.